0: All right. I'm here today with Benjamin Abelow. Benjamin is the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine. And um, welcome, Benjamin.
1: Uh, Hi there, Brittany. Nice, nice, uh, nice meeting you. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you here. So um, I listened to your you did an interview um, on the Tom Woods show, which I'm going to link in the comments. And I have to say for myself, I kind of made a conscious decision a while ago not to be informed about, not to try to be informed about everything that's out there. And so when the war in Ukraine started, I just kind of said to myself, oh, you know, here we go again. You know, the Iraq War I, Iraq War II, same same old, same old. Um, I'm not going to worry too much about being informed about this. And I kind of, I do that with, with a lot of things. I I try and do that quite a lot, actually, because I try to stay focused on what I'm doing and what I can make a difference in. Um, so when I heard, I, I, I did listen to the Tom Woods interview and, um, it was very compelling. And I think part of what's to me as someone who, you know, I don't consider myself informed on this issue. Um, What's compelling, what's very compelling about it is you're this is a really concise I'm going to hold the book up for the for the video. This is a very concise and well documented presentation of this position. I'm not going to call it your position because you actually spoke with quite a few foreign policy experts to to write this. Um, So let me ask you, first of all. Could you just maybe start by telling us what is your background and why should we listen to you about this?
1: Uh, Right. Well, um, my background, I think the relevant background starts uh, as an undergraduate at university. My bachelor's, I studied European history and actually did a little bit of work with um, uh, uh, focusing specifically on U.S. foreign policy since World War II. But that was just a small piece. Uh, I generally did a a general European, modern European history since the French Revolution to present. Uh, Then I spent um, a little bit of time overseas, but then I spent uh, two years working in Washington DC on nuclear arms issues, doing uh, writing, lobbying, uh, lecturing, and debating for a couple of years. But then I really went off in a totally different direction. I returned to school. I did pre-med courses, uh, went to medical school at Yale, Wrote a couple of medical textbooks. I taught at Yale for a number of years, uh, and then I've uh, basically been involved in other writing projects since then, uh, unrelated to foreign policy. But so I had really set aside some of this foreign policy issues uh, since my time in Washington until this war started, and uh, I also have been, you know, a bit overdosed with all the U.S. wars and have not always been paying attention to them. Uh, there's only so much time in the day. Uh, and if you're in the middle of another project, it's it's very difficult to really get up to speed. But something about this one, I'm not exactly sure uh that I could put my finger on it, but I just decided that this one was real important and I was going to really focus on it. And I sort of um very quickly fell back into a lot of the mindset and way of thinking that I had when I was working in Washington, when I was working on arms issues. Uh, what I mean by fell into the mindset, I mean uh I saw a lot of patterns that were happening now, uh, perhaps because this was a direct US-Russia thing. When I was working in Washington, the focus was on the US. It was actually way back when uh, when there was a Soviet Union. And it was the focus on the US-Russia relationship. So I think that something about this war, because it was, uh, although it's you know ostensibly a proxy war, Russia is directly involved, and the US is really right there on the border that it uh, resonated strongly with my experiences working on these issues before, and it felt very natural to jump back in. So I basically, um, I would say, sort of retooled myself, uh, brushed up on a lot of my knowledge, paid attention more to some of the specifics related to this one, and uh, just decided to start um, trying to communicate some of my thinking on it. Uh, It actually started off as a, uh, one reason why the book is so nice and brief is that it started off as an op-ed. And then it it kind of grew. <laughs> and then it became like, oh, well, this is a very long op-ed. I wonder if there are any newspapers that'll publish a, a very long op-ed. Um and then I just turned it into an article at medium.com. And then I basically took that article and you know revised it. And you know, I said, Well, why don't I just turn this into a book? I mean, this is something that people really should be reading. And um, I turned it into this book. And actually, uh, we've just completed a uh, translation into German, which will be published in October. The e-book just came out. There's an Audible in production. And um, I'm I'm working actually with an international book broker now who's going to see whether she can successfully sell it in other countries. Because I'd love to have it come out in uh, both certainly Germany and France, which are two very important NATO countries in this matter. Yeah. Uh, and the U.S. is, of course, you know, the big player in NATO. So uh, so my goal with this book really is not to have written sort of an academic book. And this is actually one reason why I, I wanted a short book. I can get it done now while it's still relevant, mm-hmm. uh, because I would like this to influence policy and um, influence popular opinion and influence policy. And uh, from what I know, I mean, I haven't thoroughly explored Amazon, but I haven't found anything like this. And other people have told me this is the only book of this type that's available right now that really in book form argues the case uh, that, uh, you know, that this is not all about an evil Vladimir Putin and a good U.S.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's the other part of it that that's so compelling for me is, is that what's at stake here, it really does, it does seem like you know, we're, we're up against nuclear annihilation here. We're, we're up against something, you know, that we haven't really been, that hasn't been in our mindset really since the days you're talking about when it was the U S versus the USSR. And that's a little bit terrifying, you know? Um, so if there's something that, that you can do, um, to get this out to the public, I think that's this is the way to do it. You know, in a, in a short format that can that can get to people. Can you encapsulate? Um, and I'm and I'm going to refer listeners to the Tom Woods interview and also to another interview that you mentioned um, to get. You know, if they want even more more in depth. Um, but can you kind of encapsulate what what do you think? If it's if it's not you know, an evil Hitler like Putin, you know, bent on world domination. What is it that we're looking at here? Why? Why is this happening?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. And actually, your comment that this is uh, it's very funny that I hadn't really put it together. But of course, you're exactly right. The issue here, ultimately, and the ultimate concern that we're most worried about is the possibility of nuclear war which is exactly the issues I was working on when I was in Washington. Mm. So uh, (laughs) I I guess it's funny that it doesn't occur to me immediately like, oh, yeah, this is why it grabs me. This is the same issue. (laughs) But um, so to answer your question, I I think I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to read just uh, two little bits from the uh, front and back cover of the book. So, again, this is the book. It's called. uh, Let's see if I can make it show here Sort of see it there. I'm still trying to learn how to work this uh, business. Well, anyway, uh, how the West brought war to Ukraine. So the subtitle of the book, which really tells the whole story in some sense, is understanding how U.S. and NATO policies led to crisis, war, and the risk of nuclear catastrophe. So I would say that's my first layer of what this book is about. And for the second layer, I'm gonna cheat again, and I'm gonna read the uh, the one paragraph blurb on the back cover. Uh, and that goes like this. According to the Western narrative, Vladimir Putin is an insatiable Hitler-like expansionist who invaded Ukraine in an unprovoked land grab. That story is incorrect. In reality, the United States and NATO bear significant responsibility for the Ukraine crisis. Through a series of misguided policies, Washington and its European allies placed Russia in an untenable situation for which war seemed to Mr. Putin and his military staff the Only Workable Solution. This brief book lays out the relevant history and explains how the West needlessly created conflict and now labors under an existential threat of its own making. So that really, I think, covers the, the main, it lays out what the conventional, traditional Western narrative is right now. And it lays out a little bit of what uh, what I'm arguing.
0: And in the book you talk, um, it's it's well organized. I think you, you um... You, the first two sections are you talk about Western provocations 1990 to 2014, and then the second chapter is uh, Western provocations 2014 to 2022. What's so significant about 2014? Can you maybe what happened before 2014 and what's significant about that year?
1: Yeah. Um, I think what I would say in terms of what's significant before then, I mean, a number of things happened, but very briefly, The US, after giving assurance, the US and its European allies in 1990, 91, when the Soviet Union was coming to an end, collapsing, or whatever term you want to use for that, uh, the West had given Moscow assurances that it would not expand NATO into the countries that were east. Of uh, East of West Germany, they basically said, "You know, we're not going to move into the territory of the old Warsaw Pact countries. We're not going to move up to your border. We're not going to mess with you." And the reason why they did this is because it was the Western goal to unify East and West Germany, which were then separated with a communist East and a uh, you know democratic West Germany. Um, the, the Western countries wanted to unify East and West Germany under NATO auspices. And to do that, they had to get the the Soviets then to agree to remove 400,000 troops from East Germany. Uh, And to do that, they had to mollify the uh, Russians, the Soviets in some way. And uh, one of the most important ways they did that was to give assurances that they weren't going to, in some sense, take advantage of the situation and push their forces closer to Russia's border. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they disregarded those assurances. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I say assurances and not uh, treaties is because they, these were never instantiated in written treaties, uh, but they were nonetheless multiple assurances from coming from many places that were then ultimately put into the writing in the form of memoranda from the different countries involved. Uh, and you can actually find that stuff online now. Um, uh, any case, the NATO began to expand. It became clear by the uh, mid to late nineties uh, that they were going to take in new countries moving closer to Russia's border. Uh, and, uh, they continued to expand Ninety, 1999, They brought in the first three countries. and in 2004, they brought in more. And in 2008, they, uh, NATO in uh, Bucharest, uh, Romania made the pivotal statement that they were going to bring uh, Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And it was already very clear to many people that uh, expansion of NATO was going to be a major problem, that it was basically creating an enemy out of the new Russia, and the new Russia that had actually overturned that evil Soviet regime. Uh, So the very people that had created this um, kind of massive bloodless revolution, one of the greatest bloodless revolutions ever, uh, were now essentially being targeted as the opponent by Western forces uh, in terms of uh, how NATO was perceiving them. And by 2007, uh, really, it became clear that this expansion of NATO was greatly concerning Russia, uh, and um, the expansion continued. Uh, uh, Georgia and Ukraine were not brought into NATO at that point, and neither is a NATO country currently. But neither has NATO renounced its uh, desire. It's, it's not, not just desire, but its uh, affirmative statements that, it, that they would become countries. Uh, and there are other things that took place as well. Any case, in 2014, that year is sometimes seen as kind of a, um, a pivotal moment. There was a, uh, uh, an overthrow of a democratically elected uh, centrist, or you could say, slightly Russia-leaning government uh, by a man named Yanukovych. Uh, but uh, due to a series of events that happened in 2013 and 2014, there were uh, uprisings in Ukraine. Uh, uh, and those uprisings ultimately culminated in a violent coup that took over government buildings and actually led to the killing of 100 civilians on the Maidan. This is the Independence Square in Kiev. Uh, and with that, uh, following that coup, in which a uh, democratically elected uh, slightly pro-Russian regime was uh, overturned and uh, replaced by a uh, uh, a western leaning regime, uh, which is now the lineage that had led to Zelensky. Um, and following that, Russia, uh, following that move, Russia uh, basically took over Crimea, which was a largely Russian, Speaking and influenced area. Uh, And this is, you know, the annexation of Crimea, which is an important area there. And one reason why they did this is they were very concerned. Russia had long maintained uh, probably their most important naval base in uh, an area called, in a town, in a port called Sevastopol. This is their uh, primary warm water port. A warm water port is a port that does not freeze over in the winter. So it's basically a a naval port where you can use all year round, uh, vital to their security interests. And it's hard to know exactly what their specific motivations were, but certainly one of them was that they were concerned that with this coup and the takeover by a pro-Russian government, um, uh, a coup, by the way, that uh, the US had played some role in as well, I should say um, uh, Russia was concerned among other things that, that, uh, they were going to, uh, have lose use of their, uh, major naval base. Uh, mm-hmm. so they took over Crimea to secure that. Uh, they may have uh, had other reasons as well. And that's sort of the moment where the West interpreted everything as these evil expansionist Russians, uh, Hitler-like, or they're trying to reconstitute the, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the old Russian empire. Um, so that's sort of a decisive moment. And and ever since then, uh, uh, the arming of Ukraine has continued to pace, uh, training of Ukraine has continued to pace right on Russia's border. Um, and uh, Russia, you know, tried many times to uh, get, get this to stop, to signal their concerns. One other thing I should mention, too, is that the U.S., even as all this was going on, had unilaterally backed out of very important arms control treaties. Uh, They uh, backed out of the anti ballistic Missile Treaty in 2001, uh, which that was a treaty that was very important in terms of checking the arms race. That treaty went into place in 1972. And then under um, uh, uh, Mr. Trump in uh, uh, 20... uh, it was 2017, I hope I'm not mixing up 2019, but either 2017 or 2019, the US unilaterally pulled out of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. These are forces treaties that prevent the placement of mid-range land-to-land nuclear missiles uh, in Europe that are pointing to the Soviet Union, pointing to Russia uh, now. Uh, That treaty went into place in 1987 when, uh, uh, when there was a Soviet Union. It was negotiated by between Gorbachev and then President Reagan. Uh, the terms of the treaty were taken over by the uh, Russian government. Uh, and then it was unilaterally pulled out of by the US. Um, so that at the same time that there was this kind of massive arming of Ukraine itself, there was also this withdrawal from these very important arms control treaties. And I discuss all this in the book. And I try to frame it in a way that is, um uh, you know, helps explain the nature of the actual threat that uh, Russia has perceived from all this.
0: Yeah, I need to pause for just a second. I've had to run and grab another pen. So when you talk about this, um, this NATO expansion starting, you know, in, in in defiance of these understandings, these memoranda, starting in the 90s, what was behind that? Why, what do you think at that time, what was the motivation? Were they, you know, was it just, you know, blind lust for power, for more territory? What, what was going on there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there were many in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that were adamantly opposed to this expansion. Um, uh, including, uh, quite a few very serious Russia hawks, meaning people who had in generally had a very aggressive, uh, stance towards, um, towards the Soviet Union and then towards Russia even, um, and a great deal of opposition. And it was under, um, uh, Bill Clinton that this expansion really began, um, the exact reasoning is very hard to discern. I think definitively, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, NATO existed as an organization. Uh, I think probably one important motivation was that essentially NATO was seeking a, uh, a reason to exist, to continue existing. It was already a, um, a well-funded, well-established bureaucracy. Uh, I think in some sense, they felt they needed an enemy. Um, there's also a massive influence of the military-industrial complex in the U.S. I' mm-hmm. uh, probably familiar with this. This was a term, military-industrial complex, that was coined by then-President Eisenhower, during his farewell address to the U.S. public, he basically warned the American public of the danger of the quote unquote military industrial complex, this kind of confluence of the military bureaucracies and the, uh, financial interests of the arms industries. And Eisenhower was a five star World War II general and hero. Um, and, uh, uh, it, you know, this it was a very important statement uh, to coming from him. So the military industrial complex certainly exists. Uh, it's not a discernible single entity, but it's a series of interlocking influences. So I think that plays a role, and that's driven to some extent by the the kind of the natural desire of any sort of bureaucracy in government to try to seek and maintain its own power and its own funding. In this case, the military bureaucracy. Um, it's also driven by the power and the desire of the arms industry to maintain their, uh, funding the way any business seeks to maintain its funding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, unlike in a, uh, in a, in a, uh, more pure capitalist economy where the way that someone attends, uh, attains, uh, you know, power and market share is by satisfying customers, the way that a, um, an industry that's closely aligned with the government can maintain power is through government action uh, and by trying to influence government action in various ways, including funding Congress, uh, bringing in people that were working in the government into their industry in very well-paid sinecures after they retire uh, and the like. I think there's also just a mindset. I mean, there are plenty of people, uh, probably some who are demagogues and probably some who are very well-intentioned. Who really uh, continued to view Russia as this very serious, dangerous threat? And uh, from an ideological point of view, they, uh, you know, felt that it was really in the U.S. best interest. And uh, you know, I won't try to determine who was who among the well-intentioned versus the not well-intentioned. I don't even know, frankly. Um, but there are certainly people. Uh, whatever their intentions, who were making the case very strongly that the uh, that we had to uh, in some sense contain this massive drive in Russia for expansionism. But the problem of course is you know everyone wants to take defensive actions to try to pr- protect themselves. But when you take sort of defensive actions by pushing up your military toward and eventually to right to the border of another country, that country is going to feel a threat just as the US would feel a threat if Russia or China or some other country formed an alliance with Canada or Mexico and started placing weapons there and having training exercises designed to attack targets inside the US. I mean, the US would freak out. And um, in some sense, I think that's what happened. Um, The US, whether uh, motivated through the military industrial complex, Whether motivated by uh, the the NATO uh, imperative to find work for it, continue work for itself, whether motivated by people who had ideological views of Russia, whether ill intentioned or good intentioned views. Um, The confluence of this uh, pushed the Russian, uh, pushed the US and uh, European and NATO military forces right up against Russia's border with very aggressive and assertive uh, training of places like Ukraine. And very aggressive uh, training exercises, uh, joint training exercises, bilateral and multilateral, uh, right on or near Russia's border. So um, I think that's that's kind of the story. That's a number of the influences that I think were at play.
0: And now you, you say in your book that um really it seems correct me if I'm if I'm paraphrasing you wrongly, but um I think you what you're saying is that. The goal now of the West, or at least of the U.S., is to weaken Russia, is to to put Russia in a position where, going forward, it's not even able to defend itself. Is that is that, am I am I saying yeah, that?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're capturing a lot of truth there. Um, I would um, put it like this. So, you know, when this war started, when Russia invaded Ukraine in, uh, you know, mid to late February, I think it was the 24th. Uh, the the us. and the Western position was that they were going to act on humanitarian concerns for the Ukrainian population and arm them to give them the arms they need to defend themselves. Uh, and that that uh, that position has never been formally renounced. Uh, and it's often presented as a humanitarian act. Uh, but uh, within a month or two after that, the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and the US Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, traveled secretly to Kiev. People may have seen this. There was a press conference afterward with those guys standing up against a bunch of boxes in some sort of shipping room somewhere or other. And at that meeting, the Secretary of Defense stated with the Secretary of State by his side that uh, the US now has a, a new goal, or let's call it an additional goal. Which is to weaken the Russian military to the extent that they cannot carry out uh, an action like this again to another country. And the, you know, one of the problems with that, of course, is. Well, how do you weaken a country's military? How do you weaken its ability not to have an offensive military unless you're also weakening its ability to protect itself in the course of an invasion? Mm-hmm. Now Russia has been invaded many times in its history. If you look at the geography of Russia, it has no natural barriers that protect it. Um, it it's basically sometimes what's referred to and I quote someone in this book refers to as a vast uh, uh, you know Eurasian plain. Um, and uh, in the last century, Germany invaded twice, uh, World War I and World War II, um, and in the second World War II, uh, the, the deaths were so massive within Russia that one-seventh of the entire Russian population died during that German invasion. Uh, and it just so happens that Putin's own family experienced deaths and severe injury and, and uh, disease Um, I discuss all this in the book. Um, So basically, uh, Russia has a history that places it in even a greater level of, uh, let's call it kind of personal strategic concern than a place like the U.S. would have uh, were it to find itself with Canada or Mexico armed. Uh, because uh, Russia had already experienced multiple invasions that were, you know, lethal beyond a degree that we can really even imagine in this country. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I did I catch the, uh, you know, did I answer your question fully there? I'm, I'm yes. not sure I, I addressed no, everything. no you,
0: you, you did. And what's um, so so whatever. Whatever the whatever the motivation was initially in the 90s when NATO started, you know, disregarding these agreements and and pushing into territory where it said it wouldn't, whatever motivated that, what what it's turned into now is is this this desire by the US to um to weaken Russia, to to make it, as you say, unable to defend itself. Um, yeah. And I mean, t- to any rational mind, that that would seem like a very dangerous thing to do. You know, when when it, it, it's in my mind, it's not possible that they that the people making these decisions don't understand what they're doing. Yeah, the the, the implications of that, what that's going to mean, how how that they that they can't see how the Russians would perceive that and and why they would have a problem with that. Um, so it, it, it's, I guess it's just, it's hard for a person, I think, who's not of that mindset or who's not, you know, going around trying to destroy other people in other countries yeah. to sort of put yourself in, in, in the shoes of these people who think that's a good idea. And I'm just wondering, is there, um, you know, why is it, and especially, you know, we talked about nuclear war, we po- talked about the possibility of that. And I'm kind of asking you a question that I know you can't answer because you can't get inside the minds of these people. But why do you think it is that the people in these positions are so comfortable being so aggressive and not worrying about, you know, they have to understand the implications. They have to understand, well, that's just going to make Russia even more desperate and willing to, you know, use even more destructive ends to protect to, to for to survive why is it that the people making these decisions don't care about that
1: they'll see it more clearly yeah. yeah that's a very interesting question um I think this comes down to a couple of things um one is I think for those who truly believe that Russia is this great threat uh, I don't think that's a rational position and I think if you look at uh The most relevant history, which is the history of the last thirty years, uh, you will conclude that's not actually the case. But uh, for those who truly believe that and feel deeply uh, concerned about it, uh, they are willing to incur a a higher level of risk than somebody who does not view the threat as quite so acute. Obviously, Uh, so if you think that there's a real threat that Russia is, you know, hell bent on overrunning Western Europe well, you're going to take a higher risk of uh, starting a nuclear war in order to prevent that from happening than if you think Russia is essentially benign or you know moderately aggressive but easily constrained or you know following its own rational interests. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think there are also, as we were talking before, there are very real and powerful financial interests at play that are not only the financial interests of the military industrial complex, but are the financial interests of the military itself. That have then become the financial interests of Congress, which is you know, brought into this web of where are our uh military contractors placed and their subcontractors. You know, the arms industry is very careful which districts they place their uh production plants and their um uh, subcontractors, and they basically have you know a, a financial foothold in the entire country. Um and you know, by the same token there, I mean uh <laughs> I, I'm going to give a, uh, well, no, I, I was going to give a very personal example of um, ways in which one can be, have one's thinking distorted by financial self-interest. But I think if if one looks honestly at oneself, you know, we being all, you know, the good people, uh, mm-hmm. but actually look at how we respond to financial interests, it's, it's a great temptation and almost happens unconsciously that you start shifting your thinking about Certain issues in order to support your financial stake. Yeah. yeah. And I think that this happens. uh, You know, the people in the military, the people in Congress, the people in the arms industry, they all have, you know, a great stake in terms of their financial interests, in terms of their political power, in terms of their self esteem and prestige, in terms of their bureaucratic power. Uh, in terms of their houses and their vacations and where their kids can go to school, it's mm-hmm. all tied in closely with certain structures, and that affects their thinking. Um, it's not, you know, it's easy to think of it as exceptionally malevolent, but uh, yeah. I, th- I think that uh, these people, that they're not necessarily evil people. They are uh, susceptible to the same kinds of um, influences that all of us are, Mm -hmm. but they happen to be extremely concentrated. So I would maybe put it this way, their risk-benefit shifts. Just as the risk-benefit for somebody who is deeply concerned about the Russians invading and taking over Western Europe, they have a shifted benefit in terms of their willingness to incur nuclear war. Mm -hmm. I would say that those people who have a financial or a power or self-esteem stake. In uh, promoting militarism, uh, they also have a, a skewed um, uh, cost-benefit analysis, yeah. and these things happen subtly, unconsciously, uh, all kinds of things like that.
0: Right, and I think it's you know it it, it speaks a little bit to the point that that Hannah Arendt made about um, the banality of evil. That yeah. you know when we when we attribute evil and malevolent motives to the people who who do these things, I think we fail to understand the mechanisms and the 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 real the real motivations and the real reasons that these these great evil acts happen and it's not necessarily because everybody involved along you know every step of the way is an evil person it's incentives it's it's this whole structure this whole machinery that you described so well of lining people's pockets you know
1: or their, or their egos or they're yeah. over, yeah. overcoming their sense of insecurity that they had from, who knows, trauma in childhood or whatever. It's, people have so many stakes in this, including, um, including psychological stakes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So to, to play devil's advocate, the people who are worried that Russia is this great threat to, to Western Europe, um, what, what would be the argument on that side? What, what reason do people have to support that view?
1: You know, they can find statements uh, among those by Putin and others that suggest a view that Russia wants to see itself as the sort of the source and the origin of uh, a lot of Slavic places. Um, they, they can look back and they can point to uh, Putin's background in the CIA in um, in the old Soviet Union. Uh, they can point to corruption within Russia. Uh, you know there are a lot of things you can point to, and you can blow out of proportion if you are looking to find evil in uh, some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just as someone who you know really wants to find evil in the u s, you can find statements among military leaders and all kinds of others. Uh, who suggests that the U.S. really wants to launch a massive invasion of Russia and, you know, take out these people. I mean, the truth is, it's it's even more complicated as the U.S. Some people in the U.S. really do want to launch regime change in Russia. Uh, And and have done so so in other countries. And have done so in other countries. So it's complicated. Um, But my point is simply that. It's easy on all sides to take what facts there are and whatever facts, real facts there are, and to misrepresent them, to blow them out of proportion based on one's own concerns. Uh, And I think that's a a major part of what's what's happening. Um, One thing that I do see very clearly in a lot of the people who are the most strong uh, advocates of these kind of views is uh, what I would describe as an almost total disregard of the history of the last 30 years. That I lay out in these two first two chapters of my book. Uh, I mean, no matter what you believe, if you've paid any attention to what what has actually gone on on the ground, uh, and you have any sort of, you know uh, sensitive human awareness of what how people and countries react when military threats are pushed right up against their border and training exercises are directed right at them. You will pay attention to this history of the last 30 years. And it's hard for me to get my head around the fact that people who are, you know, I, I, you know, presumably based on everything I can see, you know, very intelligent people are are systematically disregarding that history, disregarding statements that have been coming out of Russia since uh, at least 2007. Uh, and in some cases you know, out of con- concerns about Russia and uh, Ukraine and Georgia entering NATO. And in some cases, you can actually find explicit statements in some of the writings of these, you know, most um, uh, Russian concerned individuals that basically uh, states quite explicitly that this is all about NATO expansion. Yet when they c- it comes to their analyses, it, that somehow that just falls out the back window. It's It's really quite mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, And I discuss that in my book a little bit. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, I don't, I I guess I would, uh, you know, maybe I should put that as, that's my perception. You know, I I don't, I can't really get in their head. Maybe they have a justification for why they're they're not paying attention to that, even after they've written about it. Um, But um, I would just say, I am having a very hard time and am unable to figure out why some of these thinkers are not attending to these very obvious facts. Um uh, and are not putting themselves, even uh, for a moment it seems to me, in the place of how the US might respond if the shoe were on the other foot. Right. I actually have a chapter of the title similar, I think I think I've got a chapter yeah, title, the, you know yeah, in the book. If the, if the, the, um, well, what's it called? Uh, putting, if the shoe on, the
0: shoe on the other foot. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I it's I mean this is, you know, you could call this cognitive empathy, which is a term that um uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but um, uh, uh, Robert Wright um, uses. Uh, you can talk about putting a shoe in the other foot, you know, walking a mile in the other person's shoes. Um, it, it's. Um, uh, it's. There seems to be a piece of that that's uh, deeply missing, um, even in, you know, very obvious ways uh, in some of the thinking that's going on currently.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... What would you say of, of the people on the other side of the, of the other side of the argument? Who would be, if, if someone wants to read the other side, who would be the best? Who's making the best arguments? Who are your, who are your strongest critics?
1: Who are my strongest critics? Um, well, I can tell you who some of the most prolific and outspoken critics are um I don't really feel that I can honestly say who I think are the strongest critics because I don't find any of the arguments I've encountered so far really strong mm-hmm. um now I'm also you know I've as I said I've been immersing myself in this uh or re myself in this just for the last six months so I can't swear that I've encountered everybody um but uh so far I can honestly say I've not encountered anyone that I find uh, you know, really makes me uh, wonder, uh, oh, maybe I've got this wrong.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It um, sounds like
0: what you're saying is they're not even, they're not addressing kind of <clears throat> some of the, the fundamental issues that you're talking about in the book. It's they're either just. Over- that, mm-hmm. that,
1: that's my, that's my perception. Uh, that's my perception that they're, they're not taking seriously some of these arguments, uh, which in some cases they themselves have made uh, even in writing Um, And again, I don't attribute that to malice. I don't attribute to stupidity. I don't really know how to explain it. Um, It may just be that there's such an overriding fear uh, that this threat from Russia is real and legitimate and intractable, that they're willing to incur much higher risks than I think most people would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also so happens that those people have a great deal of say in government. Uh, partly because uh, not that they necessarily are doing anything um, uh, mercenary or, uh, you know, trying to line their pockets. But it so happens that within all the structures of the think tanks, uh, within government, et cetera, there's a great deal of money washing around. And therefore, the voices of these people are being elevated very strongly. Um, So I think while it's always easy to say, oh, these people are just, you know, they're they're, – they're trying to line their pockets somehow. Uh, I mean, it's very natural when you have someone who has a position very strongly opposed to yours, you want to find, you know, see evil in them. Mm -hmm. I think um, I'm increasingly coming to recognize that many of these people I think are very well-intentioned and uh, and are very bright, uh, but they happen to have a view that uh, I personally consider quite extreme, but those voices are elevated systematically. It's a kind of evolution. If you look mm-hmm. at how evolution functions, you have what's uh, called, you have random variation. You know, my, my background is in medicine and science, so I think in these terms. You have random variation, which we, you know, when Darwin wrote about this, he didn't really understand genetics, but um, where you have uh, random mutations occurring. And then what happens is you have particular selective pressures that lead to the selective survival of certain of these genetic traits. Um, I think something similar happens within uh, the context of uh, militarism in the U.S., that you have certain voices that you know have a whole range of opinions, uh, and then you have what I would refer to as sort of a selective pressure within all the surrounding institutions, Congress, the military, the arms industry, uh, even the media at this point, um, that then elevates, that basically, quote unquote, provi- produces a natural selection on those voices that happen to have a certain viewpoint uh, and they end up those voices end up being elevated they end up taking an especially prominent role in think tanks and therefore uh, even aside from all the actual actions of government they end up setting the um, the limits of what is considered acceptable debate because the think tanks are generating those limits. Uh, sometimes this is referred to as the Overton window you mm-hmm. know the Overton window is w- what is the the window of plausible, arguments that are not seen as kind of crazy outside the box. Uh, and that those Overton windows are also shaped by the military industrial complex. And in fact, um, uh, there's a very, uh, uh, very good um, uh, uh, ex-senior CIA uh, intelligence analyst named Ray McGovern uh, and for years, he personally provided the CIA intelligence briefings to the U.S. presidents. I mean, I'll give you an idea of who this person was. And very senior person. I believe he may have actually headed the Russia desk. Um, uh, McGovern has, uh, you know, made very strong statements about what's going on now. He's very outspoken. And. Um, uh, he, he uh, one of the founders of a group that uh, basically, you know, ex-intelligence uh, officers of, uh, you know, for, you know, uh, uh, sanity, um, he uses the term Mickey Matt, uh, instead of calling the military industrial complex, which, you know, have the two sides, the military, and the industrial, that's the end of it. Uh, actually, the truth is, from what I understand, uh, uh, President Eisenhower actually wanted to mention the Congress also. But, you know, he yeah. was told by he was told by his uh, aides. You can't mention Congress. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you That's know, it's kind of going key, key too far. Here. That's too far. But, yeah. you know, military industrial or military industrial complex. Um, Ray McGovern goes further. He refers to as the Mickey Mat, M-I-C-I-M-A-T-T, Military, Industrial, uh, Congressional, Intelligence media, academia, think tank complex. Mm -hmm. And it's also deeply influenced. Um, It's kind of remarkable uh, how pervasive it is. I'll just mention as an aside. Uh, although never, although I never practiced medicine, my my medical degree is from Yale. I taught at Yale for a number of years. I've done research. I've you know I've published uh, peer reviewed stuff in the medical literature, uh, and uh, I've also been a, a patient. And I have family members who have been patients, and I see how things work. Hmm. Um, and um, the entire medical industry is also deeply influenced by something rather similar. I was and going I think-
0: to make that connection. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that this uh, there's some marvelous books on that by the way but um which I, I won't go into here but um it's I think it's a, something that happens naturally um uh uh when I was a pre-med student I was taking uh an organic chemistry course at uh City College of New York uh uh and <clears throat> that ru- it was a great course I had a wonderful teacher uh uh well, I'm, I won't go <laughs> to give his name <laughs> but uh um I had a it was a great class and the room the one thing that was bad is the room was freezing. it was absolutely freezing the air conditioner was blasting all the time and um you know, I talked to the teacher a number of times about this and he said, you can't imagine I've been teaching this for twenty years and that I can't get them to turn off the damn air conditioner. and uh, he explained to me what the problem was. he said, the people who run physical plant uh at City College of New York um uh, they know that if they turn the air conditioner down, that will show that they didn't have to spend all the money in their budget uh-huh. and the next, and the next year their budget will be cut. Uh-huh. Um, yep. and, um, it was a very, you know, I think this is when, that was when, long before I returned to this issue, I started to really understand what is the nature of the military-industrial complex um, or one aspect of it. Um, if, if the yeah. Army or the Navy or the Air Force, uh, you know, uses true cross-cutting measures uh, or cuts back to a level of armament or a type of armament, that is actually what might be needed for true defensive purposes. Uh, they know that their budgets are going to be cut, yeah. and they're going to lose staff, and the senior people are going to lose power because there are fewer people under them, and they're going to lose prestige. They're, 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 um, you know, their whole world may shift. So it um, anyway, I'm giving all these kind of very personal stories. Well,
0: it's, it's a great example because I mean, you made the con- the comparison before to you know between you know, government entities and, and businesses under capitalism, you know, if you're running a business, you have an incentive. Yeah. You want to make money, but you have an incentive to cut costs. You have, you have an incentive to do things that are going to, you know, not annihilate the planet and also, you know, keep your costs down. But in this other system, this other system of incentives, you just illustrated beautifully how there's, there's really, there is no incentive to keep costs down. It's just the opposite because it, just it, if they can't justify the spending somehow, you know they're they're going to lose it. So they're just all all they're all about you know. Oh yeah, we need you know we need more. We got to spend more on the toilet seats or the air conditioning or whatever it is. Um, it's a whole incentive system that's that's screwed up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very true. I mean, again coming back to capitalism just for out of interest, I and I, I don't know what the nature of your audience here is, uh, you know, pro, anti, whatever, but um I think many people have a very negative view of capitalism because what they perceive to be capitalism is actually a system where there's a very unlevel, uneven playing field mm-hmm. and People cannot, uh, organization, new companies cannot come in easily to compete with those existing companies. And it's really this constant comp- competitive pressure of new, smart, innovative producers coming in at every turn trying to outcompete you compete your business by cutting undercutting you in terms of price and overcutting you in terms of quality mm-hmm. and uh, so that's the the nature of the very strong influence that can keep uh you know the 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 greed that in some sense drives all of us within a capitalist system under control and actually channel that in a way that leads to lower prices and higher quality as long as the consumer gets to make the choice right uh, and and acting in their own selfish self-interest. But when you have bureaucracies that are basically being funded through external sources that have nothing to do with the actual value they're creating for the end consumer, the American citizen, uh, the entire system of incentives is shifted very radically and in a direction that uh, works against the interest of the end consumer, which in this case is the American and world citizen.
0: Yeah, I mean, this—I think that this conflict is sort of the perfect illustration of that because you know, we're talking about the whole, you know, humanity being at risk here. When we're talking about nuclear war, you're talking about really the kind of devastation that it's it's not, you know, it, it goes a little bit above, you know, getting buying a machine that doesn't work, you know, getting bad service somewhere. It's like the worst, the worst thing you can imagine in terms of customer service, you know, when, when your customer service (laughs) ends up threatening human existence on the planet, you've gone wrong at some point, there's there's something, something's not working there.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, if if your customer service is going to wipe out all the customers, right, that's That's right. not that's not the way to run a business. <laughs> You've Gotta
0: go back and rethink rethink this whole thing. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a specific question. You know, in, in the book, you, t- you the book is titled "How the West Brought War to Ukraine." Are there any nations, any Western nations, that have not participated, or or who have you know stood against what's going on here?
1: Um. <clears throat> Well, to, to answer your question, literally, I don't know the answer. I don't know if there's any Western country that has actually, I would say, stood against it in any sort of definitive way. But there are certainly countries that have uh, played more or less a role facilitating it and also opposing and trying to constrain some of the worst forces. So I would say that Britain is... uh Quite possibly the worst, Um, uh, maybe because they in some way are constantly trying to do the U.S.'s bidding in -hmm. the most extreme and awful sorts of ways. Uh, In fact, it was Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, that secretly entered Kiev basically without warning and told Zelensky early on when he appeared ready to make a deal with Putin, a peace deal. He said to him, you may be ready to make a deal to have peace, but we're not.
0: Yeah, so that's, actually, that's, you mentioned that in the in the Tom Woods interview, and I actually was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry, but let me let me just finish that one. Yeah, one brief, Which on the more positive side, so uh, when uh, when the U.S. was trying very hard to bring uh, Ukraine and Georgia into NATO quite quickly, uh, France and uh, and especially Germany were basically saying this is not a good idea. Uh, and although it seems to me they didn't ultimately have the guts to really stand up, they did constrain U.S. actions. And that was one of the important reasons that uh, ge- that uh, Ukraine and Georgia were not brought in right away. Uh, and why they're probably still not in. So I think there's better or worse. And, you know, in some sense, you could say, well, Germany's very good. But, you know, in some sense, my own perception is, with due respect to the individuals involved, I perceive a great deal of kind of lapdogness, lapdogs, and cowards among the European uh, leadership. Uh, and in saying that, I don't mean to be like somebody here in the US criticizing the Europeans, because if anything, the ultimate driver of this is the US. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm saying that they're not strong enough within themselves and, uh, to make a real stand and to do what is right and resist some of these more aggressive U.S. policies. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I think there's definitely a range, uh. From And and there's a range of actions, Uh, you know, I would fully applaud some of the things that um, Britain, that uh, France and Germany have done, for instance, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would fully condemn some of the things that uh, have been done in in the UK. Uh, But, you know, I think you to some extent have to judge this on a person by person basis and a country by country basis and a situation by situation basis.
0: Yeah. Um I just I just wanted I had a question about the um about Johnston going um yeah to, to Kiev that, that statement. <clears throat> um when you when you mentioned that in the Tom Woods interview you said that that um you were referencing Fiona Hill in uh the most recent issue of foreign affairs. Do you yeah. know what her have you seen that? And do you know like what her source for that is is this something that's confirmed or is it something where she's saying we You've kind of heard from unnamed sources that this may have.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, Actually, when I had had, um, done the Tom Woods interview, I had not yet read the article. And actually, it just so happens uh, yesterday I read the full article. Ah, Um, So if you want to sit tight for 30 seconds, I'll go up and grab the article, and I can actually check the line where she says exactly what the sources of that were. Um, Yeah, that'd be great. I'll I'll
0: pause it and then uh, bring it back when you're back with the article.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah.
0: Okay, go. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so coming back to this issue of Boris Johnson's trip to Ukraine, so that was originally reported in a Ukrainian publication. It's actually an online publication. Uh, the English name of it would be Ukrainian Pravda, uh, Pravda meaning truth. Uh, and this is not the Pravda of the old Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the, This is a, uh, a well-read and respected online Ukrainian publication. So you're getting it in some sense from the horse's mouth if you'll uh, you know, allow for that um, uh, image. Um, that article, which came out in the beginning of April, uh, stated that, um, I'm sorry, I think that may have been May. Uh, the Boris Johnson's trip, I think, was in April. Uh, I'd have to double check that. But uh, that article stated quite explicitly that one of the two reasons why a peace deal uh, that had already been actively uh, pursued uh, between uh, the Putin government and Zelensky government, uh, through the mediation of the Turkish uh, Erdogan, um, that there was actually, uh, it seemed that there had been a tentative agreement on some of the broad terms of what a peace arrangement would look like. Uh, and there was a uh, going to be a personal meeting between Zelensky and Putin that was going to be arranged. Uh, to try to really bring it to fruition and take some of these uh, general agreements and bring them, instantiate them in a treaty. Um, uh, that was um, uh, reported in the Ukrainian Pravda, and it was stated explicitly that one of the two reasons why that fell through was that Boris Johnson showed up, and they almost used these very words in the Ukrainian Pravda article: "You may be ready for peace, but we we're not ready for peace. We being the West." And probably most explicitly being Britain and the United States, it's very unlikely Johnson would have uh, taken this upon himself to do by himself. Um, any case, in the most recent issue of Foreign Affairs, which is a major foreign policy journal, probably considered the most influential uh, foreign policy journal, I'm certainly in the U.S. and I'm guessing in the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, must be um, uh, uh, Fiona Hill, who you know is a very strong um uh you know someone who greatly fears russian motivations uh and feels that a very aggressive uh stance towards russia is necessary to prevent russian military expansion so that in the context of this article where she's arguing that position which is her usual position she also makes a very interesting statement um uh i'm going to just read uh, probably a full paragraph here from this foreign affairs article um Despite calls by some for a negotiated settlement that would involve Ukrainian territorial concessions, Putin seems uninterested in a compromise that would leave Ukraine as a sovereign independent state, whatever its borders. That's her view. I don't accept that view. Uh, mm-hmm. and my own, uh, read on the situation is that, um, the information she now provides is about to belie that very statement. But, um, uh, that's how I interpret it. Um, I can't put thoughts into her brain or what she's thinking. Um, uh, She continues, according to multiple senior, according to multiple former senior U.S. officials we spoke with, in April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appear to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would, one, I'll put the numbers in to make a distinction clear. Russia would, one, withdraw to its positions on February 23rd when it controlled part of the Donbass region and all of Crimea. And in exchange, two, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead would receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Um uh, uh, Let me just see if the rest of it applies here. Um Yeah. In any case, so that seems to corroborate the basic story in the Ukrainian Pravda uh, piece and actually seems to indicate that uh, people in the US were well aware of this. Um, uh, So uh, whoops. Yeah. So uh, I I think when you take the Ukrainian Pravda piece and this uh, statement in this um, foreign affairs piece and you put them together. You come up with a fairly clear picture of what the nature of the agreement might have been uh, had it been allowed to go forward by the western powers um, but instead of that the decision was to aggressively arm ukraine to let them continue fighting uh to try to weaken russia and uh, by weakening russia in addition to uh, trying to uh, prevent it from taking actions like this in the future also was trying to uh force russia into a negotiating position that perhaps would have allowed for uh you know better terms for ukraine and through that for the west Um, so uh so here we have what appears to be a very uh considered western action to keep this war going at the expense of you know countless thousands of lives massive destruction of ukrainian property uh the prop- continued propagation of a massive um uh you know crisis of immigration and migration um this is all uh very heavily uh shaped by uh, the doings of the united states
0: yeah and if and if the goal is to weaken russia kind of by definition that means more violence it means you know you weaken yep. them by having them you know use up a lot of their forces um do you happen to know that this this the statement by johnson is just is astonishing um do you know if he's denied making that statement or if he's if it's been put to him um i mean that's-
1: I, I, I actually don't know how he's responded to uh uh you know to these kind of things um i i doubt that there's uh, i doubt that he would deny it because he my guess is you know he's probably acting uh, again we're coming back to what to one party in the discussion can seem like a great evil to the other can seem like a uh, principled um, action uh, mm-hmm. he may have in his own mind have really felt that um you know we can't have russia you know retaining control of crimea or we can't have R- russia gaining autonomy in donbass because if you give them an inch they'll take a yard
0: Mm -hmm. And we're
1: Mm -hmm. basically in this in this view of sort of perceiving an expansionist Hitlerian sort of Russia
0: fighting Hitler.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, not many people today. I mean, I think the actual situation is probably more complex than most people realize. But the actual the most people today, if they look back at the start of World War II, and they say, if only Neville Chamberlain had not met with Hitler in 1938, I think it was, and agreed to, uh, you know, negotiate and reach a settlement with him, which they did. You know, Ch- Chamberlain came back to, um, Uh, to uh, the UK and said, you know, peace in our time, peace in our time. And then, of course, Hitler kept expanding. So, you know, if you're viewing everything through the lens of a World War II Hitlerian scenario, then in your mind, negotiation and compromise uh, becomes equivalent to appeasement. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to work out. And it's a lot of wishful thinking. So uh, uh, that's my way of simultaneously trying to, you know, move myself even. Away from a natural tendency to see evil in some of these people, uh, and to uh, recognize that they may be having good motivations; they just their thought process may be uh, not what I would think is correct. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, plus so, all the other incentives that you've that
1: you've. Plus raised. all the other senses built in, which even when those are there, they can be mediated. Those are not necessarily acting; they're having their effect consciously. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not walking around thinking, well, let's see, my prestige is going to increase and I'm going to get more money and my kids can go to college and my bureaucracy will increase. So that will make me look very good. And maybe my wife will stay with me longer and I'll overcome the trauma I experienced in childhood by feeling like nobody loved me, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, They're not saying, oh, therefore, I'm going to make a really bad evil decision. These are very subtle influences that um, I would call them insidious influences, partly because they function on an unconscious level. so uh, so anyway, that this is all a very long and a convoluted way of responding to your question that my guess, and this is really only a guess, I have no idea how he's responded to these actual things, is that he would probably uh, feel, yeah, exactly right. And I was mm-hmm. doing the right thing mm-hmm. because I was trying to prevent a new expansionist phase of Russian military aggression from occurring. Right. right. So uh,
0: before we wrap up, I just had one one um one question for you: The Nord Stream explosions, the, ga- the gas pipeline. Do you have any thoughts on, on you know, who the culprit was? What, what happened there?
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, I have no special knowledge. Uh, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. I'll share them, um, but uh, which will mostly take the form of just repeating things I've heard, but without having a deep enough understanding to evaluate those. Um, uh, so I have heard it reported, for instance, that there was a um, a Polish member of the, I believe, the European Commission, you know, associated with the European Union, who basically said, almost in these words, "Thank you, USA. Thank you." Now that doesn't mean he knows what happened. He's making an assumption. Mm -hmm. Now, many people may also know that early in February, weeks before the Russian invasion, uh, the U.S. President, uh, Joseph Biden, stated publicly that if Russia invaded again and by again in that context, he presumably meant the initial invasion being the, uh, you know, whatever he was thinking of as um, the takeover of Crimea in 2014, perhaps. But he said that if Russia invades uh, Ukraine again, uh, the, the natural gas and the Nord Stream pipelines will stop flowing. Uh, and, and one of the, uh, reporters at this press conference sent to him, uh, uh, Mr. Biden, how do you, uh, how can you say that these pipelines are under European control? And, uh, Biden responded quite directly. He said, uh, I can promise you the gas will stop flowing. I mean, it said in a very knowing way. Um, So, you know, that statement taken, uh, you know, on face value raises a lot of questions about whether the U.S. may have played a role, whether this may have been a CIA operation or a secret military operation. Um, You know, others will claim I suspect the Ukrainians are claiming that the Russians did it, which, again, I have no deep deep uh, understanding of this particular situation. So it, but on the surface, it doesn't make sense to me. They could have turned off the faucet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if they right. wanted to stop the oil mm-hmm. from flow, if they want to stop the national gas from flowing, they wouldn't have to blow up their own property to do it.
0: Exactly,
1: um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether y- the Ukraine played a role, uh, I know that there was also a pipeline running from uh, Norway through Denmark uh to uh, I believe to Germany again, which is where the Nord Stream pipelines run from. basically you know, using uh, uh European or Baltic um uh, natural gas replacing Nord Stream is actually uh, that pipeline is actually opening just about now. Right. you know whether whether it's possible that there was uh you know, some rogue element within those organizations that created that pipeline, that were trying to destroy their competition uh that to me seems a little more far fetched than a US military operation mm-hmm. but you know i really don't know um and i i myself be quite interested to see how this evolves i think it's uh i see it as a very bad and dangerous thing that's happened but um it's um uh very bad and dangerous partly in the sense that we're now introducing an element of violence and explosive explosive you know a uh, military what amounts to a military or paramilitary operation uh into one aspect of the situation that until now has been simply financial um uh you know the threat of stopping it so mm-hmm. now we're blow, now now we're talking about things being blown up
0: yeah uh,
1: that. that 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 were not being blown up before of course there's plenty of things being blown up already uh but now we're expanding the the battlefield to uh to russian property outside of ukraine um uh if if in fact it was uh you know a us operation yeah um yeah yeah
0: anything else you want to add anything we haven't covered uh
1: yeah i would like to um mention a few books uh yeah. not just not just pitching my own book again but uh pitch um uh two or three other books that I would like to recommend for people that they take a look at if they want to go deeper on this subject. Um, first, I want to recommend my own book, which I'm gonna see if I can hold it up in a way that is visible. Yes. This is the book. It's a beautiful cover. Uh I have recommendation. I have uh you can see this um an endorsement by Noam Chomsky. Uh, yes. I have endorsements by many others, um, uh which are all visible on the back cover. Um the book is only ten dollars. You can get the ebook right now. You can get the ebook for ninety nine cents. Uh, actually, by the time this broadcast, it may I may raise the price. I just can't afford to keep doing that. Um, there's an Audible edition coming out very soon. Uh, there's also a German translation in the works, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'd like to recommend that book. Uh, it's the only book I know that right now is available that lays out this argument in in a very concise book form. Now, uh, a second book I want to mention is this one. Uh, which, again, I'll try to make display clearly. Uh, you can see it's by Stephen F. Cohn. The book is called War with Russia. And it's this is the uh, memorial edition. You can see inside that little star there. But because Stephen F. Cohn died in uh, either 2019 or 2020 of cancer at age 81. Stephen F. Cohn is an exceptionally brilliant uh, man of great personal integrity. Uh, and one of the most deeply erudite scholars uh, was of Russia. Uh, he was professor emeritus of uh, uh, Russian studies at both NYU and Princeton. He's written many books. This particular book happens to be a collection of short pieces, most of which he published in the Progressive magazine, The Nation, of which his wife, uh, Katrina Vandenhoven, is the—I uh, believe she's the—the um, uh, editor in chief. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's the correct position. Any case, since most since many progressives now are basically all in mm-hmm. with a kind of liberal interventionist policy, mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine that created some conflict within the organization and some stress within the organization. But this is an excellent book uh, of very short readable pieces by Stephen F. Cohn, published I think in nineteen. 19- uh, and uh, sorry, in 2020, um, of pieces that he wrote between, I think, 2013 and 2019 that I th- I see as very important, but it does something that my book does not do, which is it tries, among other things, to debunk what really is a myth of, uh, of Putin as the new Hitler. And I think it does it very effectively. I, I said before that Stephen F. Cohn not only is a brilliant scholar or was a brilliant scholar, but has great personal integrity. Uh, this is a man who, in the 1970s, at the time, at the height of the Soviet Union, was at great personal risk smuggling copies of Solzhenitsyn in Russian into the Soviet Union. Wow. And, um, wow. you know, that takes, you know, cojones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and one of the things nice about this memorial edition is it basically has a number of uh, things at the beginning you know uh you know sort of honorary uh, you know p- statements by other people in honor of Stephen Cohn or in memory of him that gives you some of the pleasures of a biography uh in a few pages uh that you can get uh, the pleasures you can get reading a biography uh in, right before that book even starts and then reading some very excellent pieces mm-hmm. um uh, I'll mention a couple of things very quickly for those who really want to dive into the question of what the heck is this military industrial complex? You know, it, it sounds so vague or you know, you can take it down to Mickey Matt, uh, like Ray McGovern's term, but it's still like it's kind of vague uh, in your it's hard to get your head around what does that actually mean practically? Okay, yeah, it's kind of like that organic chemistry class I took, but you know, what are we talking about? And two books that are very good for that. I don't have copies here. Uh, because I listen to both of them on Audible, but I have copies on order so I can do a better job pitching them in the future. Uh, one is called The War State by Mike Swanson. Uh, uh, and I would just recommend that. I think that's very good. Um, uh, it's a very good introduction. I think the people, some people who have a sophisticated understanding already could also benefit from reading it. But I think especially for somebody who's first dipping their feet or, you know, sticking their feet into the water about sorting out some of these issues. It's a very nice history uh, of basically the US from the end of World War II to the present, focusing on the role of the military industrial complex. Um, and it's, the, it's actually not quite to the present, but it 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 does a lot with John F. Kennedy, which is very interesting. The Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, exceptionally good. Um, another book I'll just mention very quickly is um, Well, I'll leave that aside. I'll leave a second uh, military industrial complex book aside. And I'll mention one other thing, which, you know, may sound kind of nuts, uh, to some people in the midst of sort of a uh, foreign policy discussion. But, uh, since I have a medical background and I can, uh, even though I've never practiced medicine, I've, you know, done research and writing and teaching, uh, I can sort of pass myself off as a healer and, um, or imagine I can. And therefore I can offer something that I perceive to be a kind of a healing approach to all this. And that's a book by a man named Marshall Rosenberg called Nonviolent Communication, um, which uh, has applications not only for people's personal lives, but also for international relations. Um, So I would recommend that. And um, I'm not saying that this has to become the defining paradigm of how countries should interact with each other, although I think there might be a case to be made for it. Um, I would say it's something that if all of our politicians on both sides of these issues, would read and absorb uh, the world would probably function a lot more smoothly. Yeah, so and, those and actually,
0: are- I've had a guest I've had a guest here talking about nAP um actually my sister who's who's very involved with it. Um, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's um it's it's a very very I don't want to call it a tool because I think it's more more than a tool, but yeah. it's it's a very important really kind of critical way of communicating that I think can can help in a lot of ways. I'm not sure, I'm not sure politicians can be helped, but but you know yeah. definitely it's something that if this were if it if if it were more in use in our society, I think we'd be in a much better place.
1: Yeah. And actually I just want to reiterate it again, first, every book I mentioned, uh except mine, uh is already out in Audible and all of them are good readings. Um uh mine will be out in Audible, I expect, uh, in mid-October. Uh, mm-hmm. but don't wait. <laughs> Buy the paperback now. <laughs> it's, um,
0: it, yeah, it's short, yeah. it's cheap. Just get it. Get it. Yeah,
1: anytime. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the ebook if you if you don't want to spend mm-hmm. the 10 bucks for the thing. Uh, but the one thing I want to say about the audible of the uh, Marshall Rosenberg book, Nonviolent Communication, I would call that a brilliant reading. That's read by Rosenberg himself. Mm-hmm. Uh he's no longer alive. Uh, and you really feel like you're in a personal workshop with a man. It's, it's got such a personal touch to it. It's just extraordinary. Uh, I've listened to it twice and like it very much.
0: Wow. Nice. Well, thank you so much. This is, this has been fascinating. We covered a ton of ground and, um, this has been really, really great.
1: Yeah. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yep. Um, and you know, you're, you're absolutely welcome to come back on again, um, And um, yeah, just thank you.
1: Well, thanks. If I have something new to say, I'll I'll give you a call and uh, we'll talk.
0: Okay.